Cheers. To, uh, beginning oh. of another successful week. I'm going to predict it'll be successful already based on our history. <laughs> and it's but... close to the Christmas break, so that's <laughs> good too. I know. Looking Very forward to good. it. <clears throat> this is a special occasion, right? Because we is. have. Uh, well, let's thank her. Why don't you introduce and, and thank our, our audience today? Um, we have a lovely audience watching the podcast, and uh, we're trying to get more chairs. Our audience is growing, but uh, it's lovely to have them here. And uh, Marcy and Robin, thank you. Marcy and Robin, okay. Um, but also, very specially, we have this uh, donated bottle of... You can, you can explain what it is, actually, but it's got our... We have a donation, and we want to thank Johnny Walker for this, and we have embossed on it, not on record. This is a milestone for us, so... We want to thank a company that takes us to heart. Thank you. <laughs> and gave us an awesome quality uh, yeah. scotch to drink. I'm very nice. Yeah, reading this, it's a 15-year-old scotch. Uh, it's matured in a uh, in a oak cask, but it has a uh, combination of single malts, giving uh, hints of vanilla and I can other taste stuff. Them. And it is a really smooth blend. It's really quite lovely. So I highly recommend Green Label. I, I just like that it is very good and works. It does work. Well, I've, I've had the, the red label before, the black, and I did have some blue ones, but I hadn't had the green. So it's really it's interesting. Really nice. I mean, it's a really nice combination. Anyways, we're very thankful. Uh, Thank you very it's, much. It's really lovely. Thank you very much. And, and having it embossed is really something. It's cute. It's really nice. Yeah, it's awesome. That's it. And... Uh, we actually, um, you know, came up with a, a plan for what we want to talk about tonight. You want to just kind of give a rundown of what we're going to chat about? Yeah, let's give a bit of a highlight because one of the topics will, we'll, although it's ser- all topics are serious, it's going to be a, a little dour. So, well, um, we wanted to start out because I'm a new client that that you've just taken on, talking about, um, you know, stuff related to the pandemic and whether or not uh, charter rights are being violated and. Um, you know, how this stuff is playing out, especially with the new variant uh, being talked about, which leads into <clears throat> whether or not people trust the media or, um, you know, how, how their trust or mistrust uh, plays into their perceptions of what's going on and um, their belief in, in the measures that are being taken. Um, then we had a, I did a little podcast or <clears throat> episode on my channel called Roadmap to Acquittals because we were talking about new legislation and how we can use that to our advantage, um, where it originally sounded like it was going to be catastrophic. Um, and it could be if it's not handled right, but we found a way to, to work with it. And um, and also how these applications can be misconstrued um, by the Crown and um, how Crown-led evidence of a sexual nature, you know, intertwines with our applications. And... Um, and then an interesting snapshot on what's going on in the appellate courts now that the new legislation is kind of hitting the, the courts of appeal uh, for those who've been convicted and are appealing it now. And it's really interesting to see the variety of decisions that came out. And, and I wanted to chat a little bit about what happens if this constitutional um, question. And about abuse. And about abuse of this process and how in the hands of certain prosecutors, it can be really abused. And we've experienced that. So... We're going to talk about that a little bit, too, and I'll try not to go too crazy. Yeah. But starting out with the beginning, I mean, obviously, right now, we've all been for about two years having varying degrees of um, 
So feeling like our rights are being infringed in some way, there's lockdowns going on, there's um, all sorts of different rules being passed, and sometimes it seems arbitrary and so on. But um, but uh, you, your new client had an interesting situation because things changed after he traveled somewhere. So Yeah, so this, this really grabbed us. So um, Grace uh, in our office, Grace Candela, who's a partner, uh, had contact with a lawyer out of Edmonton. And they had a discussion about a friend of this lawyer who um, we were going to have on, but we we're going to try and live, sc- live stream on, a, on another podcast. And this uh, gentleman is a doctor. He's a hematologist, very well known and renowned in Edmonton. He, he had pulled lots of extra duties during uh, the COVID crisis now. And he was in East Africa with his wife. And they had left uh, just around the time before the Omicron was released about the new sequencing. And uh, they were there uh, trying to get support to develop a regional um, cancer center uh, in Eastern Africa. And um, he was triple vaxxed as well as his wife. Uh, They were coming back. And again, we're not espousing anything one way or the other about vaccinations. It's people are entitled to their integrity to make those decisions. it's just the measures taken by government which concern us and, 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 and our theme about overreach of government living in a police state. So this very wonderful gentleman who's there on philanthropic um, activities, he's volunteering his time and money, and uh, it, it, the rules change and they come back and he makes sure that he gets one or two or three tests at different intervals, but all within a very short period of arriving back into Canada. And then he's told that he has to quarantine in one of these quarantine hotels, or as I'll refer to it, a quarantine detention center. And there's a lot of confusion about what his options are. From what I can tell, he's not given his rights to counsel. And he'd asked if he could get on a connecting flight. His wife had a leg injury, celiac disorder, wanted to just get home and quarantine there, winds up getting fined. So here's where we come in. We're retained to defend the two charges of being fined to not follow these quarantine rules where you have to go to the detention center, significant fines, and he was considerably upset about that, could not uh, get on another flight, wasn't really fully informed, and then wound up at one of these hotels. And what was just disgusting was the treatment. Mm -hmm. So leaving aside where you stand on the issue, and I think this was a hastily re-implemented policy because of the Omicron variant where we don't know enough about it, and, and we're... And we're living in a different time now than we were six months ago or even nine months ago. Um, but they wind up at this hotel. There's no dinner. There's no breakfast. There's no contact with people. And not until one of their family members tweeted out their situation and then mainstream media got involved did they actually get attention from the people at this facility. They could have been there for over 24 hours without any food, without any care about his wife's health condition. And this was a frontline worker who was off in East Africa trying to do something wonderful to create a regional cancer center. So we're representing him and I'm pissed off about this story and we'll live stream him later and he was in in the media, but it's horrible and I wanna talk about this a little bit. Well, one of the things I noticed in the media coverage was that um, when they talked to, I think it was the Minister of Health in, in Ontario or something, but somebody representing the, you know, the people who are setting these, you know, rules and so on, he said that Ontario will will spare no expense to protect the public, 
I was like, spare no expense. Well, wouldn't that include actually feeding people properly when you're quarantining them yeah. and telling them that they're, they can't leave a location, no contact with anyone else? It, it doesn't seem to me that they're sparing no expense when they're delivering like three-hour-old meals that are packaged. And some of the reports are like one meal for two people. And uh, there's no option for them to order what they can eat and what they can't eat. And that's not sparing no expense. I mean, I'm not sure how how that justifies the treatment that's being reported. Bless you, honey. Yeah, no, it's pretty, uh, pretty shocking. The lack of um, organization in the implementation of a lot of these uh, programs. And it's quite surprising because it's not as though we wouldn't foresee uh, another shutdown, another type of situation you know we've, we've had multiple variants uh you know we've had the delta we've had all sorts of things so it's not surprising that you know you kind of have to be ready for having to introduce some sort of uh of program and if you're going to do so you have to have people to run it but you know i i Go ahead, Diana. Well, I, just, I just wanted to point out the size of the document that you're holding, and you've been holding it for a reason. Yeah, and, and for a, a while. It's heavy. Yeah, and so this is from was it March or April? Uh, this the the or, the decision was issued June eighteenth, twenty twenty one. I think it was argued back in in April, and it's a number of applicants versus the uh, Canada Minister of Health, and it's really about the quarantine measures and and uh, getting what's called an injunction. So to stop them from implementing, but it dealt with charter issues and whether charter issues are violated. So this factors in on what we're talking about, whether it's lawful to take a Canadian national, stick them in a detention facility. I'm calling it a hotel is not fair. It's a detention facility and leaving them there without really good contact. And this decision, I mean, this is not something that please don't think this isn't litigated. It's litigated and uh, they lost. I mean, it's it's clear that the judges aren't just looking and going, oh, we're just going to side with the government and, uh, you know, we don't care about your rights. I mean, a lot of thought and time went into um, the, the ruling in this case. But I'm just going to, we don't have five weeks to go through the decision, but I just want to read two things and then just go back to, you know, our client for a moment. And, and, and I'd like some attention to that. But um, the court notes, and this is the... Uh, the federal court. Um, don't worry about the jurisdiction. We have two high levels of court in Canada, the Supreme Court of Canada and the federal court, and this is dealing with government laws and other things. So they're the voice of Canada. Um, and so they find in this case that uh, none of the um, applicants had established that their rights were violated under Section 9 and 10 meaning uh, arbitrary detention and, and being informed why you're being detained. But more importantly, and this is important, and I've tried to say this so many times and people don't get it, okay? So we have rights in Canada under the charter called the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, right? But they're fundamental, but they're not absolute. So the federal court reminds us, and this is really important to remember in Canada, the rights and freedoms guaranteed by the Charter are not absolute. This is because they are subject to limits, limits on rights and freedoms in circumstances where their exercise would be inimical to the realization of collective goals of fundamental importance. <sighs> so, 
you can have a breach of your rights, any number of them, and they will survive that breach. So your rights can be f***ed over by government, but it is a re reasonable limit prescribed by law and demonstrably justified. Fancy language to say, sometimes the government can get away with trampling on your rights because there's this overreaching goal that society needs. So basically they said we're on a war footing with COVID, which again, we're not making any determinations about a pandemic. We know it's there. But your rights are not absolute and they can be overridden when there are other pressing circumstances active in our country. There's also a second aspect to that, of course, is that um, there's also Section 33 of the Charter. So even, That's a good point. even if the courts had said, you know what, uh, not only has it been, you know, is this legislation violation and it's not saved under Section 1, meaning it's not acceptable in a free and democratic society. Section 1 is essentially what that was just speaking to. Right. right? This is an excellent point. Though. Right. Both of you are making a good point here. Is that um, regardless of that, the uh, parliament uh, and also provincial parliaments. Which has happened now. Which has happened just recently in yeah. Quebec. Um, can enact any law that violates the charter uh, for certain sections, section seven <clears throat> through 15. So they can't get rid of elections and those sorts of things, but arbitrary detention, uh, arbitrary or um, unreasonable search and seizure, rights to counsel, all of those things. Cruel and unusual punishment. Cruel and unusual punishment. Think about that, those, everybody. Those are all the sections that is entirely legal for the government to enact a law. All they have to do is when they enact the law, to invoke the notwithstanding clause, <clears throat> that is section 33, and the law exists for five years, at which point there's a sunset and they have to revote on it and reenact it. But, you know, we do not have um, a very robust um, protection. The king of understatement. <laughs> yeah. But can we pause on that for one second? Yeah. But the notwithstanding clause isn't used very often. like Other than in Quebec. And here. Uh, well, Doug yeah. Ford one, uh, Doug Ford used it. And that's the issue. You is, know, one of my favorite politicians. No, no, that's absolutely true. And, and I mean um, facetiously. And it's, you know, for, for example, in Quebec, that was used just recently for the bill that uh, prevented anybody who works in the public sector, including teachers, to wear any religious headgear. Uh, you know, uh, and that is, so it's not just a, uh, you know, a theoretical. But usually when, usually it's section one when they override rights. And <clears throat> I've tried to make that point a, a lot that it was just like, oh, so, but you need to understand section one. And then yeah, yeah. when I try to explain it to people, they just kind of glaze over and they don't really get it. But it's so important to understand because when people get really upset going, my rights, my rights. And it was like, to understand your rights, you need to understand section one. And that's the, you know, if it's, if it's justifiable, you know, and in a free and democratic, free society. And democratic society. So it's, you know, and the, the atomic uh, weapon is section 33 is when they say, look, even we can't justify it in a free and democratic society, right. but we're still going to do it to hell with you. We're still going to you over. Right. This is really important. So the atomic use interesting word. The government can override the court's decision. So even if the federal court or the Supreme Court of Canada, we're not saying they, they would have done it in this case, right. but 
they can override the court's decision and still implement that law. That's where we are in Canada. And, and it's used not frequently. It's, it's the rarity. Yeah, thank God. Section, section 1 is also a rarity, but it's there. So we have to have this very clear understanding about what rights mean in Canada. They're not immutable. They're not absolute. They're subject to these qualifications and to the whim of your politicians. So when I say this, when people say to me, how can this happen? I go, pay attention to what your politicians say. Pay attention. Because one day they could be you over with this overriding section. Pay attention. Do we want to live in a police state? Analyze their policies. Think about it. Well, and it's interesting too, because they say, you have been saying for a while, a lot of these policies are not mandatory. You have a choice. You have a choice whether you want to leave your home or not. You have a choice if you want to go to certain establishments. You have a choice if you want to switch jobs because your job has now, now has a requirement to it. So that, you know, they can skirt around it being mandatory or compelled, right? Well, uh, that, that um, isn't much of a, you know, th that wouldn't really hold water in court, so to speak, because courts obviously recognize that choices... Uh, there can be undue pressure that's put on a person. So, yeah, okay, you can either choose to comply with this or you starve. You know, that's not much of a choice. And courts tend to recognize that. So then they have to deal with a section one and they... The well, there are certain and, and things I, like access to food. Clearly, you can't deny people access to food, but... Apparently you can. So, like... Yeah, right, right. I, oh, hang on. We're, this is this is why I was on the phone. Hello? Hi, Helena. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. We have a caller who is anxious to ask us some questions. Long so time I, I, listener, first long time listener, first time caller. Ding. Yay. Hi. Welcome to the show. Fantastic. Okay, I do have some questions about the quarantine hotel. Um, is it the quarantine hotel? Can I ask questions about that? You can. That's what we're talking about now. We're calling it the quarantine detention center. But rock yourself out. Go ahead. Perfect. Okay. So I would like to know how it is legal that people are held there when they could go home and quarantine um, by themselves. If they, let's say they live alone, so I am a single person, I live by myself, or I'm with my spouse, we want to go home and quarantine, we've had negative tests, we'd like to go home and quarantine. Why is it mandatory that we visit a detention center and have to pay? So we have to, at our own expense, stay in a detention center and then just wait for them to give us the okay to go home. Because the, gov because yeah. the government said so. So, so. so recently, because of the rise of the new variant, what's been implemented is if you come from certain regions in the world, we're going to treat you like and put you into a detention center when really we should treat you like like Canadian citizens with civility and comfort and care and try and make it really nice for you while still protecting the public. Uh, and we don't. So it's lawful. And we just went through a case through the federal court that the decision was issued in June of 2021, which said, no, Section 1 of the Charter overrides the violations if there are any violations. So that's the answer to the question. Um, if there's an overriding public interest because of an ongoing issue, in this case, the pandemic, they can implement that. And unfortunately, now, you know, if you're in Ontario uh, and you can and you can safely get home um, and you're not from one of these regions, then you can go home. 
But previously, like I think you were suggesting as well, people were routed no matter what to these quarantine detention centers, even though you could go home and you had to pay these exorbitant, ridiculous f-ing fees and they treated you like sh-t. But you could because the government had this right and it's been upheld by the federal court. So you have to pay the fee for your hotel, but you can't pay to bring in food on Uber, Uber Eats or... Or DoorDash. Okay, so yeah. I have a couple questions there then. Is that the JCCF decision you're talking about? Yes. Wow. Okay, so that was the first one. Sorry. Well done, yes. Justice Center for Constitutional <laughs> well I'm, Freedoms. I'm on this, trust me. Can we do a happy <laughs> face on the podcast or like a thumbs up for this caller? Well done. <laughs> Number two, is that not discriminating against people that have funds versus people that don't. So if I now, let's say I have two different scenarios, I am somebody with little to no means that wants to go visit somebody from a country like that, let's say I'm a dual citizen, whatever, I can't afford to come and stay in their crappy hotel. So then that means I just don't go, as opposed to somebody who's very wealthy that can't. That was my first question. My second question, I forgot what it was, but I'm sure it'll come back to me. Well, yeah. Okay, I, my second question is, how do we quarantine? So the the variant that they say is coming from South Africa. Why are we quarantining a whole continent? So why, if something comes out of like Greece, we don't quarantine all of Europe. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how is that fair? Well, I think it makes sense to, to pay attention to where something seems to be sourced. <clears throat> like... Like originally we were concerned about people traveling from China or specific countries that were identified as like super spreaders or something that, that kind of makes sense to me. But, but I know people have said it's like, people have said it's like punishing uh, Africa for telling us about the new variant. Yeah. So, yeah. so let me, let me just try and address that. So we, we, there have been a lot of doctors who've said that the policy preventing people from certain African countries, particularly East Africa, South Africa, et cetera, where they were able to sequence this very quickly and get it out to the medical community and so that everybody could sequence and detect it, are being punished. I agree. That's wrong. They shouldn't do that. And as we can see now, um, there were cases that had arisen in other countries. I can't remember which one now. Belgium, prior to identification about South Africa. And you can see that the rise now in Kingston, Ontario, with about 20% or 21% of Omicron isn't because people were traveling back from East Africa. So I think this this supports your position that these types of travel bans now, now that we have you know, at least some means of dealing with the illnesses by way of vaccines and other treatments, really is arbitrary. And in fact, it penalizes other people and countries. And I agree with you. Let me just bring it back to kind of uh, our, you know, uh, bailiwick, which is, what governments can do as opposed to what they should be doing. Because the decision to ban, you know, an entire continent uh, or several countries, so on and so forth, that's, you know, not something that I can, you know, opine on. I can. I can simply discuss what governments can do. And when your question, your original question being, how can they do this? It's, there is no... um, Let's put it this way. Even no redress. Even under international law, you have no ability to enter into your own, uh, inter, enter into any country, right? Um, citizens are allowed to re-enter, but they got stranded. But they get stranded, and government. We've- 
stem over too. Well, absolutely. Yeah. So governments are allowed to introduce certain rules. BJ, am I okay so far? Is or is somebody going to my show or a podcast? Like, no, I'm okay right now. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So short answer is the government is allowed to do this. It's what, regardless of whether it's smart or not. Well, the the original question. Hang on, we have a caller. Let's yeah, I, I please go ahead, caller. Okay, hang on. But there was a part one to the question we haven't addressed yet. Okay, and, go ahead. And I think it's quite important because from the beginning, in terms of like people um, being able to vaccinate or choosing to vaccinate, there has been an argument put forward that people in lower incomes are actually being um, disproportionately affected because it tends to be people in lower incomes who are choosing not to vaccinate, who are then being punished. There, There is actually a really big issue that's been on the table about lower income people actually suffering more as a result of the pandemic, despite all the social justice oh, without a doubt. saying that this is to protect vulnerable people. Do, I, I'm, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. <clears throat> um, financial ability is not a protected charter class. All right. This is, you know, maybe shocking to some, but um, we have no, the fact that poor people are, disproportionately uh, affected by something or there's an unintentional consequence that uh, affects people of modest means is not a redress that the Charter discusses. But I think what Diana is trying to address is that the, the SJWs who are trying to force this stuff on people, they're the ones who always use minorities as a shield but all of a sudden now minorities aren't, you know, an adequate shield for them. You know, that, I think that's what she's trying to address. Right. Two, sep- yeah. two separate issues. Yeah, yeah. One, one is ethnicity and the effects on uh, ethnic minorities. And the second is poor people. And they're not interchangeable. Also, I would, I would say, I would argue that there's an unknown effect on women uh, that women have been reporting and being ignored a number of problems with the vaccines and that they um, ha- don't have any proper studies. Not to say that women are choosing not to take the vaccine in a higher percentage, but um, but there's been a disregard for any studies looking into how they might be affected differently. Not to say that men aren't, because myocarditis is a Yeah, there's a number of issues, problem. but again, we're yeah. not discussing the efficacy. Like hey, hang on, I got I to address this. Caller, please, one second. I got to address yeah. this. We love you. Just hold on one sec. We're not, we're not addressing the efficacy or the side effects. We agree there needs to be more study. We're in an emergency circumstances right now, and I agree. We need more study. Leaving that aside, I think one of the issues we're talking about is how vulnerable sectors of our community are disproportionately impacted and we need to do a better job of protecting them. And my rebuttal to Chris would be, that's not my standard. That's the SJW standard. They're the ones who hold minorities and race up as a flag to enforce things when it's convenient and gender Mm -hmm. when it's convenient. But when it's inconvenient, then they drop it. Right. That's not my standard. That's their standard. No, you're right. Thank you, BJ. Yeah, but I'm not sure how that's a reply to anything I just said. Well, Are you in a fight now? He's our producer, for God's sakes. <laughs> go, go, go. Hey, I'm not sitting there. I want him to go, stay go on, on our there. side. All right. No, I'm just Caller, happy to can you please, what's your question. next debate question? Come on, give it to us. My next debate question. Okay, I am going to stay 
clear of the efficacy and all that of vaccines right now. Good. Mine are simply quarantine questions. Yeah. Uh, the quarantine, we were talking about East and South Africa, but my specific um, question was about Egypt, to be honest. Isn't that North? Like, am I, am I ridiculous? That's North Africa. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know Egypt would have been caught by this. Egypt yeah. is caught in this, and this is actually, I just had um, an it's issue North Africa. where people that I knew were quarantined. <sighs> they were double vaccinated. They had three tests before they came back home. They were held in a quarantine facility until for four days, no clean clothes, nothing like that. They're not uh, uh, Fortunately, they didn't have any dietary requirements like that lady that was celiac or whatever. But yes. They, they said that the food was was not good, but it wasn't, you know, they weren't being abused in any way. Um, but on the fourth day, they did get their, their negative test result. Another one that they took as soon as they landed in Canada it took four days for them to get that. And as soon as they got the negative, they still weren't allowed to leave until the administrators said that they could leave. And yeah. that could take one or two business days. That's insane to me. Yeah, we agree. I mean, I, I, I didn't realize that Egypt would have been on that list um, I, per se. I, I'll have to check into that. But the fact that they would be forced into a quarantine detention center and have to wait for the negative test and then for some administrator to get in touch with them is absurd. And frankly, even though the food might have been adequate, I'm sure it was awful. So that's another another slight to them because like I'm sure they because I'm sure they cook a lot better. But but I'm interested. Did they have a residence in 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 Toronto or Ontario? They do. They have a residence in Toronto. They are citizens of Toronto. They are seniors, and one of them uh, is a doctor. So so they uh, they weren't allowed to have somebody maybe from the family pick them up in a car and drive them home. No, and they were not even after they got their negative test. They were not allowed to leave until they were told they could leave. And it took, I believe, in their specific case, it took about six hours for that to happen. So it was on the lower end of what they said. Could It could take up to two days. But they were still forced to stay there. Um, and they could not leave until the administration told them they could leave. Look, that seems to be a breach. I mean, I mean even under this case, um, unless... Look, I'd have to check where, where I, I, to see if uh, if Egypt was on that list. I don't remember them, Egypt being on that list because there was no Omicron being detected there, and I that that seems like an unlawful detention. Pretty clearly, um, they should be suing. Not that I'm giving legal advice with a disclaimer to say that anything I say on this podcast uh, has to be checked with another lawyer, and I'm not giving independent legal advice on it. But that's just f-ing absurd. Yeah, it's, it was upsetting. It was a family member, so it was upsetting. And it was upsetting to know that they had no change of clothes. And again, they were seniors. Not that that really makes a difference. I mean, no, it does, because they're... they're, they're if they're very healthy, but seniors are more vulnerable than others, especially in stressful circumstances. And isolate in their home with no one else there, but yet they're forced into a hotel with others there that might have any kind of disease or whatever you know and it's airborne well we can argue about be- it being airborne but you know if we can say that there's a lot of things yeah. that are airborne so there is it's airborne yeah 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 let's... with people breathing and doing whatever all kinds of ailments i don't understand how that's safer i really don't and then to boot it's at their their funds too you know they're, yeah. they're paying for it well i'll uh, i'll reach that's out to you point. after the podcast to find out some more details so okay. uh is there anything you want to say in closing because we're going to move on to another segment but we really Appreciate your viewership and calling. Thank you to everybody. You guys are doing a great job, and I look forward to listening. 
Thank you, Helena. Thank okay. you. Bye. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye Good night. That's awful, eh? It is. Well, okay, so one of the issues here is that, like, that's an anecdote, yeah. right? Like, we don't have the actual information to confirm what, you know. And, no, but I'm going to try and get And she's hearing these things secondhand. But so this leads into well, sort of our second topic, yeah. right? Yeah. This, you know, yeah. So they probably understand what was going on, but sometimes people get things wrong, as we deal with all the time. Yeah, you yeah, tell no, them stuff yeah, yeah. and they don't understand. I'll try and source this out, though. Yeah, but one of the issues is that we live in a new world now where we don't just have you know, the CBC and, uh, you know, the National Post and like, and, you know, outlets, news outlets that, y you know, that they're actual journalists and so on. Now we live in a world where you can go online and you can hear these anecdotes. And then all of a sudden these people are getting silenced and you're like, why are they being silenced? And then you get suspicious, what, you know, and then you can see that, you know, the, like the, the media that we're consuming is so contradictory sometimes. And you're like, am I being gaslit? Like what's going on? And then you end up with a situation where people think that, you know, the police state that we're living in is much potentially much worse than it really is or whatever, but they don't trust anybody anymore. And that is a serious issue because the freedom of the press is essential to a democracy so that people can be informed but when people don't feel like they're being told the truth anymore, all of a sudden you don't have that. Like, even if they're telling you the truth, nobody knows if they're telling you the truth. And that's a massive global crisis right now where people don't trust the media. And that's affecting the way people are responding to all of this new information as we process and move through all these different waves of, of the pandemic that um, what are we going to do so that people feel like they can trust the news they're getting? I just want to note that for people who watch the podcast and our wonderful viewers often say, I interrupt you and get pissed off at me. So my interrupting therapy, interruption therapy has been working because I haven't interrupted you. Well, we've got a bark collar and we keep uh, zapping it. Thank you. No, the, those people who say that, they forget oh, why. Yeah. Uh, if you like our podcast, <laughs> can you watch it, like it, share it? Send us money. Just kidding. What else do we have to do? Have a reason to do so. Yeah, I'm trying. That's why I need you, Ben. What is it? Okay. Subscribe. Like, share, subscribe. Leave a review. Leave a review. Thank you. Please do that so that we can stay on you. And post a comment. And I respond to comments and I love the comments. So thank you very much. And I do. My wife will tell you. I do. It's like it's midnight. I'm still responding and I'm telling you, thank you very much. It's really... I will not. I will <laughs> I guarantee will. that I will not. He doesn't not. answer my emails. <laughs> Okay, we're partners in a law firm. He doesn't answer my emails. Okay, let's. But this is this him. is a great topic. Yeah, I would also point out that those people who criticize you for interrupting forget when I interrupt you all the time. So I know, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> they I should know. pay attention. They should like, pay. They should pay. It's the way they absolutely should pay attention to that. It's the way conversations work. So, um, but uh, so trust in the media. Like the thing is, if and politics, we got to meld it because this is such a. Well, I, I interrupted. No, but it's like it's all part of it, and I'm struggling to put it into words in, in a way that that makes sense to people. And and I I was listening to 
uh, a journalist who's an independent journalist uh, named, I, I'm going to massacre his name, but Matt Taibbi. Oh, yeah. Um, he's brilliant. And he was saying, like, we don't have any actual proper trained journalists anymore. They're all opinion writers. Yes. And they're told what opinion to have before they write. And the result now is that nobody knows who to believe. Yeah. And it lends to people then moving Except into us. conspiracy territory. Yeah. Well, because they don't know who to believe anymore. No. Before we, we go into the broader, there's w one interesting aspect, which is, um, you know, several episodes ago, uh, you discussed the issue about bail for a guy who was charged or is currently facing charges of um, murdering a police officer. Yeah. In, uh, and the one that I got death threats when I talked about the bail system. Yes, but yeah. only by me. Um <laughs> And they didn't criticize your hair. No. Anyway, so, you know, one of the things that happened uh, when the media, you know, when the story came out, you had a number of uh, politicians make statements and things of that nature. And when a bail ha hearing occurs, there's a um, publication ban. So, you, can, you know, the media actually can't report on the details of what happened, uh, what evidence was presented at the bail hearing. Uh, and often that's, you know, for the purposes of protecting the accused. But in this case, the accused has actually gone to court in order to seek to lift the uh, publication ban in order to try to fix the public record, so to speak, yeah. Um, yeah. and tell uh, his side of the story, as, as his counsel is, is arguing. A decision hasn't been made, but that helps in fostering this kind of you know, mistrust in the media if all that can be said about a case uh, at the front end is you know, just uh, kind of really... Uh, the most sensational allegations, none of the evidence that's actually presented in court in terms of mitigation that leads to actually reconsidering maybe the seriousness or uh, the strength of the Crown's case can be presented for years on end. You got to give the short version of this because like, I, I understand what you're saying, but it's kind of like getting lost. I'm not sure there. if I can. Yeah, well, okay, go ahead. Thank you. Because I just don't want to interrupt. Um, I think this is a really important point that, that we're, we're, we've been inching towards. Um, we don't, your point is excellent, that this lawyer wanted to release partial reasons from the decision for bail to be reported accurately in the media so that the public would actually have an understanding of why the release occurred. So that politicians, when they heard the release, and they came out and said derogatory things about the decision and that we needed bail reform so that he would be able to correct the record. So this is important. This is where the media intersects our political discourse and how it impacts our rights. And we no longer have independent, objective reporting of facts. We have opinion-based media. When you go to the social media, there's almost always opinion-based and we are too, but we, we try and check our facts. And, and if I f up, like I did when I was, we had, there were some facts I got wrong when we were talking about the Rittenhouse decision and I went to the trial decision and the trial evidence to correct it. But but to be fair to you, in, in Canada, it was hard to get very hard. 
<clears throat> accurate media reports of what was really going on. It was, and you and you brought it to my attention. It was practically impossible because all the media outlets in the United States were reporting only what they wanted to report. So you couldn't get an accurate reflection. That's now spilling over to Canada. And if you want accurate reporting, I don't know where the hell we go anymore. And then that feeds into what the government wants to feed you, that you're going to gobble down and we have to critically analyze because we know a lot of it is just garbage. Well, we have and a, it's frightening now. We have a very scary situation in Canada with the media where there's a government bailout to help media because they're competing with internet personalities yeah. And, yeah. and so on. And um, so the government decides who's legitimate as a news organization to figure out which of them gets access to about $600 million. So that's the government paying for media. Um, to continue existing. And yeah. then it draws into question, now are they becoming propagandists? Because you have to fit a requirement to qualify it's for the bailouts. point. I mean, CBC. It's a bizarre situation. And, and I've always had a soft spot for CBC for, for personal reasons. And I, and, I, and I liked the way they covered certain stories in the past. You know, I covered the Mike Duffy trial uh, and I was on air and, they, and they, they really did a good job on a number of cases when I was asked to come into to the studio and report on it and they were interested in the truth but you raise an interesting point if they're tethered to the funding of the government how much freedom do they have how much freedom will they have in the future and where is the integrity in reporting and and, and fact checking there's meetings that have gone on between the government and the media about who's going to qualify and the media has not actually been fully reporting on what's going on at those meetings should they not give so again to transparency you know it's, it's, it's very it's, concerning should you not take all the major outlets here in canada and give them all partial funding so that they're able to continue but we're in a situation now where I, I, I'm sure people who are watching this podcast, including both our producers here who know this and have been on top of it far better than we have, but we're in a situation now of complete misinformation. Well, and why is it that you had to stop for a moment and say, I was like, are we okay so far? We're worried about oh, being, we're being censored. censored. Right, that's right? it. Yeah, absolutely. And so so that's the concern out there for everybody. I'm you off can of LinkedIn. See, you can see things I that go- I got kicked off of LinkedIn because I actually want to speak the f***ing truth. What's I had LinkedIn? advertising on LinkedIn. What's and LinkedIn? Because of something I poked, I posted up. I got a bunch. I got a barrage of horrible shit coming my way. I'm not going to talk about it because I'll probably get booted out of other stuff. But I got booted off because I spoke the truth. The point is that permanently, LinkedIn, LinkedIn permanently, LinkedIn is not a place. LinkedIn. It's not like a place you'd expect booted. to get booted oh, from. No, well, I can certainly help you, LinkedIn. <laughs> That stays in, right? <laughs> oh, that f stays in. Well, that stays in there, my friend. You don't take that one out. Not the British <laughs> accent. No, oh, Jesus. No, no. It's from the Peaky Blinders. I know. I don't. I just love it. I can't People wait don't till get it season they six. Watch the show. I'll have the hat next time. No, but really, we're being censored. So the, the problem um, is that people yeah. see things disappearing online and then it feeds into conspiracy thinking and then, then it, you know, then it gets harder. It's like a whole um, spiral that pulls people into like a rabbit hole where then they just don't know who to trust and who to believe anymore. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's dangerous. And we're moving down this road now faster and faster. And I don't know how we're going to get out of it. And frankly, if we can just transition for a moment to our other topic that has something closer to what we do with our 276, 278 applications, which are these things brought out by Bill C-51 about how if we want to call or elicit evidence about prior sexual history. So this goes back to our defense work in sexual assault cases, and we defend people who are wrongfully accused. We really do. 
and, and how the media has influenced the government policies oh, on these issues. How the media has influenced this. And now we've just, just, there's an example. Like Diana has done a great job of reviewing decisions over the last 12 months. And you see the evolution of how lawyers were completely confused. I'm going to turn the chair over to you to talk about it, but then boot it back to me to talk about our recent experience in one of our cases where we're going to win. Well, we've won all our applications, but where we're going to win this next one, but where I just lost my because of what can be done in the hands of somebody who's a prosecutor and how it can be misused and, and possibly lead to a wrongful conviction. Over well, to you, and, and also, I'll actually throw it over to Chris as well, because you do a lot more um, appellate work, um, you know, in, in terms of like at this firm anyways, you've done a number of appeals and successfully done so. Because I can't swear in a court of appeal. <laughs> it's true. He's not allowed to. Or bang my desk like this, but go ahead. That's also true. He's not you allowed to. You didn't actually swear. You, you lost no, but I was temper, muted. You... I was muted. That's true. I was, I was on Zoom. I was muted. I'm banging my desk. Finally went out and muted. I, I didn't swear, but I was still banging. Yes, I and, and I did hear what you said when you were muted. So. Yeah. Um, Jesus Christ. But so this legislation on new rules of evidence um, was mostly spurred on by public disapproval of certain decisions in yeah. Canada, primarily the Giangameshi decision, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, one um, decision. But there's been other one, ones that have been mobilized. Yeah. And um, so, you know, and there's some disputes. Some people say it was already on the table prior to that or whatever, but that's Got the it. public support for the new legislation. And uh, so this was passed and it was sloppy. They, the legislation didn't actually say how to implement it completely. So yeah. a lot of things were left up, like the judges are going, I don't know, do complainants get counsel provided by the state or do they have to pay for it? Or yeah. what does it mean for them to meaningfully and be involved in, in, cause now they have rights to be involved in, in pretrial hearings and so on. So all of this stuff now, these decisions for people, especially people who've ended up being convicted are now coming to the court of appeal yeah. and you can see like yeah. when you're involved in it and you do these in depth, when you do an appeal, talk about how complicated it is. You need every trial record, every hearing held, everything. So what's involved in doing an appeal? Well, yeah, that's, you know, step one, it's a paper, uh, you know, step one is you got to get all of the trial materials, everything that was said in court. Uh, and Not just the transcripts, but the applications. The exactly, applications. the decisions, uh, things of that nature. Uh, and it gets, you know, you really, ha you've got, you're behind the eight ball when you're appealing something, right? Because there's kind of already a presumption of you got the first kick at the can. So uh, in this particular case... That's why case, important, it's important for people to get a good lawyer and do oh, it right the first time. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Don't, don't ever plan on winning on appeal because that's not a really winning... Get it right the first time. Do your research. Winning strategy. So right now, everybody's kind of uh, waiting for the decision by the Supreme Court, which will really kind of animate uh, which way many of these appeals should be decided um, because obviously uh, this is kind of an extraordinary But we're situation. hearing appeals before that decision. It's not going to come out until I know. You know, months into the new year, I think. Yeah, I'm a little surprised uh, that people aren't trying to kick it down to wait to see if, because of course, depending on what the ground of appeal is, you know, if the Supreme Court rules one way, 
uh, and all the courts of appeal, you know, you already had your day in the court of appeal and they ruled in a way that's different than the, you know, Supreme Court. You got to, you know, then have the appeal to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. um, you know, to get the rubber stamp at that point. So it's, I'm a little surprised at how many people are getting appeal dates before waiting to argue it uh, before the uh, Supreme Court's decision. Do you really think like, so if the Supreme Court was to say, and I and I actually don't expect them to fully do this, but if the Supreme Court to say all this legislation violates rights to fair trials and all this other stuff, if it was to say that, would everybody who had a trial during no. the two years of legislation be able to reopen their case? No, not at all. Because no, but it's a question that the public doesn't understand the answer to it. Yeah, no. No, it, it depends. You know, you, you really have to look at the individual appeal, the individual facts, and whether you can claim that participating in the regime had a material impact on what the decision was. And if the verdict would probably have been the same regardless of the error, then you're they out of luck. The conviction, exactly, right? And they defer to the credibility assessments of the trier of fact, be it a judge or jury, right? So, uh, of course, now we have a lot. Like an appeal lawyer, Diane. Good work. Yeah, no, we have a lot more be, since the introduction of that legislation. <laughs> surprisingly, we have a lot more. Uh, judge alone trials uh, because you don't, you know, when they got rid of preliminary inquiries, you no longer ended up in the Superior Court. You no longer ended up in front of a jury. So there's a greater ability when you have a trial judge decision that actually has, you know, reasons for the Court of Appeal to look at it and really assess whether, in fact, um, anything that happened mattered. When it's a jury and it's just a guilty, not guilty, uh, it's a black box. So in that instance, it's a little easier to make the argument that, you know, the findings of credibility could have been impacted based on, you know, uh, the process. It's very interesting because normally it's harder to overturn a jury verdict than it is a judge alone verdict. It is, but... Looking at the specifics of this legislation, how it interplays and how a judge's reasons will help to, you know, the the Court of Appeal will be able to look at the judge's reasons, look at the decision of the Supreme Court and say, you know, if we tank, tinker around, how would it, you know, would that trial judge's decision, the reasoning still stand, yes or no? It's a lot easier for the Court of Appeal to do that when it's a judge's decision because they're written reasons. Court of Appeal, no. Okay, I mean, so uh, now you're no. way too calm. Can so, I scream about so something? Now, All right, go ahead. Come on, I, we need some energy here. I want to. I want. I want to go back to the the. He mentioned the elimination of peremptory challenges and stuff like that too. Oh, f- <laughs> I know it's complicated, but I it's just that there that. was a storm. I said preliminary inquiry. Things that. Oh. Preliminary inquiries. Oh, okay. Preemptory challenges or preliminary inquiries? Well, there was a storm of things. So there was the the new rules of um, evidence. Then there was the elimination of preliminary hearings. Right. So you didn't have access to try and get things under oath in advance. Preliminary hearings went bye-bye for sexual assault cases and a bunch of others 14 years or under. And then there was the elimination of... sexual assaults. Right. And then there was the elimination of jury selection with the elimination of challenges with peremptory challenges. 
extremely low cost. So and all of these things happened at the same time. And this is the snapshot I'm seeing with the, you know, uh, appeals being made oh. is like all of these people going, well, we don't think this was fair because, you know, this other judge said this thing. And like everybody was just it was chaos, absolute chaos. Yeah, no, this. You picked a jury in a murder case right after that came in. Literally, you you didn't know what to do. Yeah, it was. Sure, look upon the accused. Yeah. Couldn't say anything. On on the Monday after. Can you imagine you pick juries in Canada? You don't know all about your jury? And the judge didn't know. Everybody. First 12, come on up. Do you hate people? Do you hate hate indigenous people? No, we don't know. There's no way to know. Why should we even check? You know why? Because they're politicians or morons. This is why I say you don't get good criminal justice policies by our politicians who are f-ing idiots reacting to one case in Saskatchewan. Don't, ela- don't eradicate 200 years of a practice because you think you know what you're doing. And you're wrong. You're just f-ing wrong. And our Supreme Court can't say it's okay. Just a little no correction. Problem. You do get to ask if they hate natives. You do get to ask that. <laughs> That one question. That one question. <laughs> what do you think they're going to say? Juror, here, let's, let's pretend. Stand up. Uh, you just don't perspective juror, can I just ask you one question? Your Honor, I, permission? Okay. Uh, if, uh, if the uh, accused is indigenous and the complainant is like, a white person, totally off camera would right you now. hate the accused because he's indigenous? I hate everyone. I'm a misanthrope, so. Do you think most... You know what? You're Do you still think on. most potential jurors are going to go, yeah, no, no, I hate him because he's indigenous. That's that's the funny part. You show up, you, you know. Yeah, because nobody it, wants to be on a jury. If you if you answered the question. I hate yeah, our system. No, I'm, I'm you, you know, can just tell I'm, some jur- I'm not prejudiced, but you're wearing a swastika on your t-shirt. Uh, there's no ability for us to kick him off. There's nothing, nothing. They limited the ability of us to kick off people if they have a swastika on their f-ing shirt or like an indigenous person with a f-ing line through it. Nothing, nothing, nothing we can do. Yeah. Nothing, Actually, we can't do as a defense lawyer, nothing. Isn't there a rule that you can't wear symbols in court? Uh, I don't know, I saw marijuana leaves. I saw, and I think I saw something with a finger on it, you know, like this, I once, like that to Justin. I once, I once had a prospective member of the jury wearing a uh, Tamil Tigers, yeah. uh, which is a uh, you know terrorist, terrorist organization, organization listed in Canada, uh, so you know, I don't think he really cared about the symbols. Oh, f- okay, can I just go back because I know we're running long. Just give me two more seconds. We're gonna have to splice this one up into a number of things, but can I just go back to our two seventy six, two seventy eight? Right. Okay. So I did a video called Roadma- Roadmap, Roadmap to Acquittals. That was a really great title. And yeah, well, you came up with the title. <laughs> But you did a great video, super great right. video. Because what we came to realize was that when super great, this super great video, super great, super great. Video. <laughs> so uh, we came to realize that what started out as we thought catastrophic legislation, when we lost the preliminary hearings, this was a way to present our case to the prosecutor good writing. to say with really f-ing good writing, good work. <laughs> teamwork 15 and 0 so uh so um it's a a chance to present your case in a storytelling format this is what they say this is what we're going to say this is the evidence we expect is going to come out and this is what we want to bring in and it gives the prosecutor a chance to see how their case is going to play out right um when you lay it out in full 
And a lot of a lot of lawyers decided that they wanted to just play their cards close to the chest and and try to do as little as possible. We went the other direction. Right. And and, and you had a hard time adjusting totally. to me when you came to my firm I because I said I lay it out. I've laid it out my whole career. And I've sa- I found a benefit when Chris came on board. I was like, what the f- are you doing? You don't f- tell them anything. You don't trust them. And I'm like, no admissions, not, no concessions. That's not the, yeah, that's not the reason I'm doing this. There's a strategy behind it, and it works. Liars be liars, and but they're still stuck right. with what happens. And 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 to credit of our judiciary, frankly, which I do love in our country, and I do think we have the best criminal justice system in the world. I do. There's flaws, which you hear me swearing about. But every so often. You get a prosecutor who wants to create mischief. Don't you? Right. <laughs> Don't you? Yeah, and without without discussing precisely... Careful. No names. No names, no descriptions. <laughs> or details But every so often, this legislation in the hands of a certain type of person who prosecutes, they can really create mischief, can't they? Right. So one of the things that we've pointed out in a couple of recent applications successfully is that... The defense has a right to respond, a special right to respond to Crown-led evidence. In Canada, Crown, for anybody in the States, prosecutor-led evidence. That if the prosecutor intends to adduce or put some evidence into the trial, then it creates uh, an absolute ability, thank you, um, for the defense to, to counteract that, to rebut that evidence. And if the Crown didn't put it into, or the prosecutor didn't put it into play, then we'd have a harder challenge. So what we've encountered is that sometimes certain people will try to separate the Crown-led evidence, saying, even though it's sexual nature evidence, they say, no, I'm doing a prior discreditable conduct application, which we'll have to explain what that is, saying, uh, so this is a special thing where they want to bring in alleged or proven sometimes proven but usually alleged other alleged. prior bad acts saying these acts show a certain kind of animus uh by the accused towards the complainant that explains why she didn't report earlier explains other, why other she stuff. stayed yeah. with the person or so, whatever right so so if again just explain okay so Let's take an example. You have a case where two people have known each other for a short, short but relatively intimate period of time. They like each other. They wind up having an encounter and a sex assault charge arises from that. There's evidence from the complainant statement that says, well, you know, we were friends, but, you know, there was like more contact than friends, but I didn't really mean that. And I... We would hold hands or we'd kiss each other. I gave mixed signals. I gave mixed signals and, 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 we dance all the time together, so I guess he got mixed signals. But, you know, there was one time that he was really aggressive with me, and he, he touched a body part, and he pushed me down on a bed, so that wasn't great. And then on this occasion, which we're talking about now, he went too far. That's like, I'm just giving you a broad view. So the, so we want to bring an application because our client at the time thought he had an honest but mistaken belief that she was consenting based upon their prior sexual history. And what that actually... just. I've been I've been super good this episode, but Lies. what that means is the person, based on the way they interacted, there was a certain dynamic at play where they had a real they had some sort of connection that he thought they had in a way that they communicated about sexual interaction. Okay, now the prosecutor wants to so we bring that application. The prosecutor says no, f- you no 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 that goes to the twin myths. 
It's all wrong. You're... What goes? That's what I was trying to interject. What goes to this twin mess? Anything we want to raise. Something so simple as her having told police, I gave him mixed signals. Ugh. That's all we want. Holding to be hands. Able to talk about. Holding hands. Holding hands and dancing together. Yeah. Okay. And then the prosecutor wants to say, but they want to bring an application for prior discreditable conduct, meaning acts taken by the accused, which are discreditable, bad showing that they didn't give a about the bodily integrity of the complainant. So pushing on a bed or, you know, grabbing a boob. When you or say they, the else. Crown wants to bring the prior discreditable. Yeah. The Crown's doing that. But what the Crown's saying is that's a separate application. That should be heard separately. So our stuff is admissible because he did not show respect or care for the bodily integrity of the complainant. But the defense, no, 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 no. You can't bring in anything that the complainant has said in her statement about giving mixed signals, dancing together, holding each other, or any of that other stuff. That's wrong. That goes to all this impermissible reasoning about women would consent because you had holded hands or all that other stuff. What is it relevant to, she kept on saying. What's it relevant to? Be careful here. Right. But no, that's a common question. The way What's they frame it. What's it relevant it, to? That's always the question from the Crown at a 276. Right. And we lay it out very clearly. Prior sexual and history. we're right and we're going to win and there's no issue about it. But what my problem with this is and why we're raising it here is this legislation, if upheld in entirety, can raise mischief with any type of prosecutor who wants to allege any acts of prior bad conduct, which may not be bad conduct, but at the same time argue we are unable to advance an argument to rebut that. That's not what we think the law is, but it's really dangerous. And we're raising this simply for this podcast because that's something that is going on. It's not a joke. It's real. It's in our cases. I have no doubt we're going to win it. But this is what's happening. And this is what leads to wrongful convictions. This is what leads to a miscarriage of justice and a skewed set of facts. So you get bullshit in the media. You get bullshit in social media and bullshit in court. This is wrong. Well, they, she wanted to splice her own complainant statement up and only allow the things that look bad for our guy. I'm not saying what completely... she did or did not want to do. I'm not ascribing true intention enough, to her. Intention. All I'm saying is what's in her this is she was asking, material, right? which is just wrong. Yeah. And it would skew infer... the trials. And it, it means that only the only valid evidence is evidence of guilt and any evidence of innocence is that's impermissible the money line for tonight that's, say it again say it again for the camera the so only evidence that. that's admissible is evidence of guilt and anything that indicates that there might be innocence is not permissible that's the way it was being presented right so that's the danger that we face in the future so we have to be vigilant to fight against that now i have no doubt and we'll come back and we'll tell you about this case we're going to win the application but that's the danger and that's where this type of legislation can create a mischief. And we need guidance from the Supreme Court of Canada. And you had a great rant at the actual hearing where you're just like at the end, you read a section of the Crown's own argument, which you pretty much put forward is like, she's saying my evidence that I want shows that he's this horrendous person who had no respect for her bodily integrity whatsoever. And then, um, but anything we want to rebut that with is, is a rape myth. And you're just like, this is... Um, I was dangerous. Pounding the table. This is dangerous. This is not what Bill Bill C fifty one was trying to do. This is an this would create an unfair trial, and it's you know you didn't use the word catastrophic, which is why I originally yeah, fell yeah, in love yeah. with you. Catastrophic. Um, but we but, can't. Yeah. 
But you, you set it forward so perfectly and using her own arguments against her. Like you can't, the crown has, and, and I know you guys laugh at me when I say this, and I know Nick Exenis, who's also awesome, he laughed at me. He's like, you're so special. Crown has a special duty. <laughs> right? You're Sorry. laughing already. You're laughing uh, already. They do. But. Crown is not supposed to seek convictions. They're supposed to seek the truth. They well, have a be, special duty. Fair, there's a lot of great Crown attorneys there we've run into. There are an amazing yeah. number. Um, Who pull cases. Totally. Yeah. You know, you cross-examine somebody. Oh, yeah. We and had they, that in a major I've case recently. And they, they turn pulled. around and they yeah. say, yeah, no, this is not, this should not go to the jury. But, but the danger is that some instances, yeah, they will try and really press that line and overreach and it can lead to a miscarriage of justice. And it's wrong. And this is something we have to be very careful about. And we'll see how this one plays out. Well, and you know, to tie this all back again, do you know one of the things that causes the crown to press a little bit harder when they should actually be a little bit more neutral? Quarantines? Yeah. Bitcoin? Quarantine makes people Bitcoin? a little bit stir crazy. So that, that can... joke. Sorry. You know, yeah. Sorry. Bitcoin, I hear, is fabulous. Um, but uh, no, it's uh, when there's public pressure, when it's a high profile case. Absolutely correct. Totally. On that note, no, no, I'm going high five. I'm out of alcohol. What? Good stuff, guys. Yeah, I'm done. I just because you be, give it all to me. I'm trying to lose. You're trying to get now. me drunk. Thank you, everybody. Thank you to uh, Helena thank who you. called in. Thank you to Thanks our lovely to our audience here tonight. Thank you to our producers. Thanks to Mr. Johnny Walker. Thank you to people Walker. who won't censor us and cancel us. God bless. Until next week, Mr. Johnny. And thank you to Mr. Johnny and embossing not on record. Bring save that thank bottle. you. I'm definitely, <laughs> yeah. I'm saving that bottle. Thank you so much. It's an empty Good night, bottle. everybody. <laughs>